Hi, I'm Pinny. I'm Astrid. And welcome to It's a Continent, the podcast that decolonizes history one story at a time. So we're here to challenge the common misconception that Africa is a country and essentially appreciate the identity of each nation. Um, and through each episode, we'll be exploring key historical moments which have shaped the continent. Hello and welcome to season five of It's a Continent podcast. Season five, you know, we've... Uh... <laughs> We've grown. <laughs> yes, there's been growth, there's maturity, there is more content. And... She says that and this is our third attempt at starting this audio. Just a L- little, little bit rusty, a little bit rusty. You know. rusty. Getting... Technical difficulties in them man there, but um, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. We made it, we made it. 2022. It's an exciting year. We've got a book. Of course it's exciting. Yeah, there, We're bringing yeah, out a yeah, book. It's, 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 we're, there, there is a book this year. So yeah, really, really looking forward to 2022, season five. How's it going? It's going well. It's going well. I feel like I'm getting into it, if that makes sense. I feel like it's just, it's only just yeah, January. January is just the trial period. You know, if you want to subscribe to more, you just carry on, you know. So we're nearing the end of our free 30-day trial. And we are entering the rest of the year. If you are new, we always like to kickstart with an African pride. So someone, a story who's doing something that's just making us proud Africans. So first African pride of the year goes to, I feel like I'm handing out an Oscar or something, goes to the incredibly... <laughs> so virtual, virtual Oscar. Virtual, <laughs> virtual claps, guys, virtual claps. <laughs> The first African Pride of the Year goes to the incredibly inspiring Kenyan-born sociologist, Professor Patricia Kingori. She's a woman who has achieved many firsts. So in December last year, she became the youngest woman to be awarded a full professorship in Oxford University's 925 years history. She is also the youngest black professor at Oxford or Cambridge University. Oh, wow. This woman is incredible. She's a professor of global health ethics and her research has explored field workers in clinical trials in East and West Africa to the preparedness of frontline workers in humanitarian crisis. She is currently leading research exploring fakes, fabrications and falsehoods in the 21st century. And this research hopes to understand the people, places and processes involved in contemporary concerns about fakes in global health. That sounds like it's needed now more than ever. Tell um, me about it. <laughs> yeah. Seen a lot of this fake news about, and especially looking, you know, she's looking at it from a healthcare perspective as well. When I found out this story, 925 years. Uh... Oh, should we really have like walls to be breaking down? Because, <laughs> yeah. wow. But yeah, thank you so much, Patricia. And I just wanted to, yeah, recognise this amazing achievement a cheeky one from last year, but hey, still incredible. It's, it's as I said, 30-day trial. 30-day trial. We're still within the period, so it's fine. So this season, so for those of you who have been with us um, for a little while, we're doing things a little bit differently. We had a lot of requests to look at certain topics, so we've decided in between us sharing historical stories from different African countries, We'll also be doing topic-based episodes. Transcending the countries. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to use the word transcends because Transcend. it just makes it sound really powerful. I feel like I would just end up misusing it in a sentence, so I'm not even going to attempt through this episode. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
So in this episode, we are starting off with our first topic being the African Union, which is celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. So look at us being relevant. 20th anniversary and we're covering the African Union. Well, look at that. Right. So the African Union was officially formed in 2002, but its vision and mission stem from the Pan-African movement which emerged in the 19th century. Pan-Africanism has no clear definition. For some, it's about social and political equality and the freedom from economic exploitation and racial discrimination. For others, it's a shared set of assumptions expressing the desire for political and psychological liberation, as well as the unity of all Africans, whether on the continent or those in the diaspora. When the movement emerged, Africans were being exploited through the slave trade, followed by colonisation through the scramble for Africa. And so Africans were driving their liberation through the movement. Africans were facing very similar issues across the continent. So, and also out of the continent too, right? With the United States and the Caribbean and just Africans in diaspora in general. So yeah, it's, um, let's see how it all began. Since its beginnings, the Pan-African movement has evolved and the movement has passed through three key stages. The first stage, the Pan-African Congresses, is often considered its inception. Stage two involved the creation of the Organisation of African Unity, the OAU, which I think we allude to a lot in in previous episodes because it's usually during that kind of time, yeah. And finally, its third and current stage, the African Union, also known as the AU. So we'll go through all three stages, but we won't provide a comprehensive look into the Congresses as that would definitely need its own episode alone. The beginnings of Pan-Africanism are disputed, but it really came to be in the 19th century. So most Pan-Africans emerged at the time from the Trinidadian Henry Sylvester Williams to the American W.E.B. Du Bois and Jamaican Marcus Garvey. Then in the continent itself, you had the likes of Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana, Jomo Kenyatta of Kenya, Julius Nyerere of Tanzania coming forward, especially in the 20th century. So this is not an extensive or exhaustive list. There are plenty other people that have been involved in the movement. But again, that would warrant another Another episode. (laughs) (gasps) So as mentioned, the first stage involving holding Pan-African Congresses, the first of its kind, was being organised by Henry Sylvester Williams in 1900. So just as a reminder, Henry Sylvester Williams was from Trinidad and Tobago. So an interesting fact about Williams is that he was the first black man to be admitted to the bar in Cape Colony, which is now known today as modern day South Africa. And the first Congress brought together Africans from the continent and the diaspora to discuss inequalities faced by Africans, their emancipation and their future. As Bishop Alexander Waters, a prominent religious and civil rights leader, stated in his address to the attendees. For the first time in history, black people have gathered from all parts of the globe to discuss and improve the condition of their race, to assert their rights and organise so they might take an equal place amongst nations. This was a pretty big deal. And this was held like way back in but yeah, That's literally what I was going to, I was thinking. All that way back, they were saying, actually, we need to come together. This isn't just a problem in the African continent, but... This is everywhere, you know, it's happening to us, be it in the UK, in the States, and we need to come together to really figure out how do we gain equal rights and actually secure our freedoms. Like, it's, yeah. 
And I think this mm. is a side sometimes that gets lost because you, I feel like sometimes the narrative is very much, yeah. Yeah. This happened to Africans, this happened to Africans, yes. But we were also pushing hard to make sure and coming together to find a solution to ensure our freedom, which is, um, which I think is nice to highlight. Yeah, definitely. There is that sort of image of like, oh, they just rolled over. Oh, how did they let them? colonize mm. <laughs> i saw a tweet that had like marathon runners i think they might have been from kenya you know those long distance tracks yeah and they just had the kenyan athletes standing there like yeah you know one and they had like some european athletes looking on the floor just exhausted and the caption was something like how did they let europe colonize them and it's just like um it wasn't through running yeah <laughs> <laughs> how is that even <laughs> uh, this is why I'm not on Twitter. Mine is also not feeling like I sound remotely interesting. But what? <laughs> wow. Yeah, I was just like, it's it's not. Missed it's not the fun. complete point. More congresses were held in the years that followed. 1919, 1921 and 1927. They were held in various locations from London to Brussels and Paris. The congresses that followed were organised by W.E.B. Dubois. But sadly, Williams never lived to see the Congresses develop as he passed away in 1911. These Congresses struggled to have a strong representation, especially from African nations. So, for example, in 1919, there were 57 delegates from 15 countries, 12 from 9 African countries, 16 from the US and 21 from the Caribbean. So, yeah, wasn't much. It was a work in progress, a work in progress. Indeed. Indeed, but also what's interesting, I mean, this is pre-World War One. I've just clocked like this. <laughs> like, the presence of black people within Europe, for them to be able to have locations in London, Brussels and Paris and have gatherings. And have gatherings, of, yeah. like, pan-African gatherings in these cities. And bearing in mind, the continent didn't start getting independent until 50s, So you're like, yeah, yeah this is way back. It's incredible. And also the African-Americans, you know, segregation, Jim Crow, it was all in full force back then. So mm-hmm. this is incredible. The Fifth Congress in 1945, held in good old Manchester in England, was a catalyst that helped to drive change within the African continent. In attendance, you had Jomo Kenyatta of Kenya, Namdi Azikiwe of Nigeria, and Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana. There was a strong focus on freeing Africans from colonial control and ensuring they obtained equal rights. These ideas had already been embraced by the African Pan-Africanists in attendance, and they shared the same outlook. The Congress was praised for fueling the likes of Kwame Nkrumah to push for the decolonization of African nations and the unification of Africa. That's an interesting one, unifying Africa. Mm-hmm. Do you think that in a sense it's because um, the majority of the borders within the continent are colonial borders? So in in effect, I guess, I wonder if they were pushing for the removal of those borders as well. Yeah, potentially. But I think they also, I interpreted this unification was seeing that like they needed to come together, be it borders yeah. or borderless, to be able to actually support each other and be able to make improvements. And in terms of they couldn't go it alone. You couldn't just have your yeah. country gain. Um, independence, get your infrastructure together, being able to support your citizens. They needed to all come together in order to be able to deliver that for everyone within the continent. Yeah, no, that is also, that's really true. And 
we see that because especially with that domino effect that we see with all the independence movements and how yeah. all the countries supported each other at the time. And they were also like new, right? I know we said this um couple of <laughs> couple of seasons back. Um <laughs> but around there was no blueprint for a lot of these countries that became independent. Do you know what I mean? They basically mm. had their identity, their history erased, and they're like, right, you have this country, it's been renamed Tig the DRC about 300 times. Here you go, feel free to now um, run it as a country. Like, what, what, what do you do? Mm. As we've seen with a lot of these countries, you maintain elements of what was there before. Um, so, yeah, I think... The concept of unification was kind of like the right strategy, for me anyway, um, yeah. at the time for them to take on as well. I mean, they faced a, a, common, a common enemy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, let's be frank. So that helps. It, yeah, it's easier when the enemy is the same. But yeah, um, it also means that you have to unite to defeat. And in the years that followed the conference, African countries began to gain their independence. So how did the African Pan-Africanists in attendance at the Fifth Conference bring the movement to life in the continent? In 1961, Nkrumah and Ghana came together with Algeria, Egypt, Guinea, Libya, Mali and Egypt to form the Casablanca Group, which focused on delivering Africa's Pan-African future. It's interesting that they've come together with Algeria, Egypt, Libya, for example. You know, we've discussed this on the Gaddafi episode, which... You know, a couple of seasons ago. But that invisible divide that we see by the Sahara Desert, it mm-hmm. does it not serve sometimes to separate the different regions within the continent? Because it should come as no surprise that the Northern African countries were kind of involved in Pan-Africanism. But yeah. it kind of still kind of, I don't know, it comes across as a surprise sometimes. But yeah, yeah it's interesting that they still, you know, came together and formed a group. Um, They were, in fact, the only pan-African group to appear in the continent at the time. You also had the Monrovia group. So this group brought together, there were basically 12 African countries that had formed the Brazzaville group. These were Francophone African nations that had come together. And so these 12 countries were then brought together with Ethiopia, Liberia, Nigeria, Sierra Leone, Somalia, Togo and Tunisia to create the Monrovia group. Both the Casablanca and Monrovia group believed in the movement, but shared different views on the approach. So you had the Casablanca group, who was often considered more radical as they advocated for immediate political union among the African nations that had already gained independence, whereas the Monrovia group was opposed to political union and called for close cooperation. So although they had the same kind of vision and objective, They had different ideas when it came to how actually that should be delivered. They had these two groups then at the time. Both groups were at a bit of a standstill until 1963. In May 1963, an African summit was hosted in Ethiopia with 32 African nations, including those part of the Casablanca and Monrovia group. Also in attendance was Kwame Nkrumah, who in a speech at the summit stated, there is hardly any African state without a frontier problem with its adjacent neighbours. But let me suggest that this fatal relic of colonialism will drive us to war against one another, unless we succeed in arresting the danger through mutual understanding on fundamental issues and through African unity. We shall have fought in vain for independence. Oof, that hits. 
And that for hardly any African state without a frontier problem. I mean, how many episodes have we covered, covered with... Where... There have been internal disputes, neighbourly disputes, all as a relic of colonisation. His speech very much reflected the summit's objective, uniting African nations and ending colonialism. With this objective in mind, on May 25th, 1963, all 32 nations in attendance agreed to join forces and established the Organisation of African Unity, the OAU. This provided one central point for driving the Pan-African movement within the continent and delivering change, and it saw the end of the Casablanca and Monrovia groups. That Fifth Congress, I'm conscious that not everything is down to that Fifth Congress, but I do think it was a driving force, as we said, about really pushing the lights of um, Kwame Nkrumah to really delivering kind of change and driving towards kind of the pan-african movement within the continent but they also had that idea themselves i think it's nice to see that they were able then to come together and say do you know what we need to put our differences aside on this and find a way to unite and set up this organization as we mentioned earlier the oau was stage two in the evolution of the pan-african movement so the OAU was introduced at a time when African countries were heavily pursuing decolonization. So supporting African countries with decolonization and beginning to piece together a united Africa became a key priority for the OAU. Its charter highlighted five key purposes to promote the unity and solidarity of the African states, to coordinate and intensify their cooperation and efforts to achieve a better life for the peoples of Africa, to defend their sovereignty, territorial integrity, and independence, to eradicate all forms of colonialism from Africa, and to promote international cooperation, having due regard to the Charter of the United Nations and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. In 1963, the OAU had 32 member states, but eventually all African countries joined the organisation. But Morocco did withdraw from the organisation in 1984, when Western Sahara was allowed to enter the organisation, and... The reason for their salt um, is covered in our episode on Western Sahara, Africa's last colony. So that's us plugging ourselves there. Plugging ourselves, first one of the year, love it. Yep. (laughs) Morocco did eventually return 33 years later in 2017. Wow, it really took them 33 years to get Mm -hmm. over the dispute. To get over that, yeah. Okay, hon. Cool. The organisation successfully supported border conflicts, territorial disputes and civil wars. But there were also some failures. It failed to always hold its members accountable when it came to authoritarianism. Well, there's plenty of examples of that. Mm -hmm. Corruption, economic mismanagement, bad governance, the abuse of human rights and the absence of gender equality, as well as the eradication of poverty. Because of these failures and others, the organisation was dubbed the Dictators Club. Which sounds like a Netflix original, doesn't it? But... Yeah, it does. <laughs> Gosh, you're giving them ideas already. Just... You guys have to pay this. This this doesn't this creativity doesn't come free. <laughs> yeah, honestly. It was full at this point of despotic leaders, with the likes of Idi Amin in Uganda and Mobutu in the Democratic Republic of Congo all present. Again, could we argue that that is the OAU was set up and one of its mission is to sort of end colonisation and that the relics of colonisation almost 
fostered the environment for despots to thrive, you know? I think they just took advantage of the situation, right? Yeah. A lot of these people, because there was no yeah. structure to be followed. And so you could come in and be like, well, I, I'm army leader and I really fancy being the actual leader now. So yeah, I think it's definitely remnants of colonialism being there. And I think it's, I can't imagine what it must have been like at the time. You've got all these countries getting independence at different times different political situations happening there's com- internal conflicts yeah border conflicts and you've yep. got to find a way to bring them together of course you're gonna have corruption mismanagement of course of course it was never going to be the easiest of tasks was it no no definitely and another challenge that the oau faced was that it didn't really have any real power and therefore couldn't deal with the issues that many african countries and their citizens faced tried again (laughs) they tried they tried but i mean it wasn't always successful one of the things that i thought was quite interesting to share is during my research i know we've spoken about you know during the congresses you had the united states and um african countries kind of coming together to discuss how do we free ourselves and you know gain equal rights and during pan-african movement during its infancy you had the likes of malcolm x for example and uh, kwame nkrumah developing a strong friendship so they basically inspired one another and you know they have the same beliefs when it came to pan-africanism in malcolm x's autobiography he mentions how both he and krumah agreed that pan-africanism was the key to the problems of those of African heritage. Again, emphasizing that whole idea that they did come together. It wasn't just a, oh, the, this is like Africans from the continent's problem. So let them, yeah. they both saw that they were dealing with similar challenges and it was important for them to have this unity and come together to figure out, you know, how did they get out of it? Mm-hmm. Affected Africans all over the world. With the challenges we highlighted, the OAU was starting to feel, you know, yeah it wasn't really working out you know it wasn't really being taken seriously so what do you do rebrand and rebrand was needed and so as a result in 1999 the oau introduced the cert declaration this was a resolution which called for the oau to be replaced with a new organization the african union the au The African Union came into force on July 9th, 2002, and is considered the third stage of the Pan-African movement. The organization's vision is to create an integrated, prosperous and peaceful Africa, driven by its own citizens and representing a dynamic force in the global arena. This vision embodies Africa's next phase, as its predecessor, the OAU, had prioritised decolonisation. The AU focuses on the continent's development and unification. This felt like pretty good timing, to be honest, to introduce the um, AU because decolonization had happened and I feel like potentially the OAU lost its sense of purpose and footing that actually you needed that. Yeah. Let's switch things up. Where you do we go to next? Switch, switch with the times, like evolving yeah. with the times. The AU's focus on development and unification is reflected in the different elements that form its emblem. I do love looking at emblems and symbols and just be like, what does this mean? So get ready. Make sure you Google it as I'm describing this. So you have the palm leaves, which represent peace. 
There are then gold circles, which recognises the continent's wealth and bright future. The plain map of Africa um, without borders in the inner circle signifies unity, which again, I think is an important point around what you were alluding around. Mm. They've not carved it up. It's just a plain map of Africa, no boundaries. So that signifies unity. And finally, the small interlocking red rings at the base of the emblem stands for African solidarity and the bloodshed for the liberation of Africa. The AU recognised that a plan was needed to achieve its vision. And so in 2015, they introduced Agenda 2063, which is described as the blueprint and master plan for transforming Africa into the global powerhouse of the future. Does Loki, Loki reminds you of when a company says, oh, this is our goal, this is our vision, and then they pick a date that's like... Our goal, <laughs> <Yeah>. 2099. <laughs> and you, no one is alive to hold it accountable. <laughs> Where's your optimism, Chinny? Optimism. 2063. We'll, we'll, we'll be on season... Wow. I will be like, <laughs> welcome to its continent, season 150. Please go back to season five. Where you can hear us. We can hear us brightly and youthful. Agenda 2063 is also a recommitment to pan-Africanism. The agenda has seven aspirations, which range from inclusivity to developing an African cultural identity, as well as being considered an influential global player and partner. It's also divided into five 10-year plans, and within that, there are 15 flagship projects. I just picked the one when I was reading this, the one project that I saw, I was like, oh my gosh, this is really interesting. Uh, But one of those projects involves developing an African integrated high-speed train network. Okay. I hope it goes better than HS2 because... (laughs) (sighs) Yeah, that's true. That's true. Or the Elizabeth line in London, which... (laughs) The UK and trains, it's just not not the best experience not gonna lie that being said i did struggle to find information on the, the high speed train <laughs> this is what i'm saying you push out the goals <laughs> no one holds your account okay so i'm bringing optimism in season five and for the yeah. 2063 yeah, let's, okay okay i'm bringing realism Mm-hmm. Bring it optimism. optimism. Okay. But okay. yeah, I still think it will be interesting to see how it develops and, you know, where the continent's rail network will be in 2063. You know, it's across the continent. I, I think that would be cool. Especially that should be our trip. People Manifestation. Rail. I'm manifesting it. 2063, you know, we're going to do a train trip around the to continent. To be fair, there is, there is a Lagos Ibadan um, in Nigeria rail link but i suspect it might have been outside influences that built that but hey um yeah let's let's see how that goes the au has also delivered positive change and improvements beyond just having a roadmap for africa's future for example they've supported conflict resolution between member states and negotiated and supported countries needing debt relief especially during the pandemic And in recent years, the AU introduced the African Continental Free Trade Area, making it the largest free trade area globally. So that's exciting. Mm. Although this is still a work in progress, according to the World Bank, by bringing together the whole continent, it will help to connect its population of 1.3 billion people and has the potential of lifting 30 million people out of extreme poverty. 
whilst also boosting the incomes of nearly 68 million people who are currently living on less than $5.50 a day. But the organisation, the AU, still faces ongoing challenges. In 2017, a report titled The Imperatives to Strengthen Our Union looked at this precisely. The report identified climate change, violent extremist ideologies, disease pandemics and mass migration as some of the continent's key challenges. However, in its current state, the AU was ill-prepared, according to the report, to adequately respond to current events because despite its achievements, it had to still be made fit for purpose. The report recognised the important role the AU played in ensuring the continent's future success and survival. However, it recognised that it lacked follow-through, in the sense that resolutions were introduced, but it wasn't always clear whether or not they'd been implemented. Of course, another challenge it faces comes in the form of authoritarian and exploitative African leaders and governments, who at face value appear to agree and align with the AU's vision, and are opposed to things like human rights abuses. However, the lived reality of their people tells a different story. These leaders and governments' dishonest ways also prevent actual progress within the AU and the wider continent. Can we just say, right? Yeah. It still has to be made fit for purpose. <laughs> 15 years it's been around and it still needed to be made fit Maybe I'm being, I'm too impatient. Sorry, I was oh, coming so through now, with now, the optimism. Now and now, <laughs> oh, go, look at me, look at me, look at me. What happened to your pan-African vision? <laughs> <laughs> look at me telling a different story now. That's the thing, reality bites. I mean, we know that the principles that the OAU, the AU, previous iterations stood for are very ambitious and very for the good of the continent, but actually executing and implementing these is very difficult um so it kind of just highlights that the struggles that the au is facing is kind of linked to that yeah that's the i feel like it's an ongoing challenge but we still live in optimism because we want to do this train trip and i do think just (laughs) just on the whole as well it would massively benefit just looking at that free trade area it would have such a big impact and positively affect so many people that it is important to kind of just keep working at it i don't know what else there that's is that's the thing one of the ambitions of the au as well was around the oau at the time was around that eradicating colonization mm. but i don't think that you actually ever get to a stage where we are actually post-colonial because a lot of the challenges are still there you still have people mining from you know the congo for example yeah um and there's a lot of exploitation that's actually still happening from within a neo-colonial settings a lot of western influence that you know this cfa um for example but yeah i think some of that could also be hindering the process so basically there are positives but a load of hurdles to get through a lot of hurdles with the au having a clear blueprint on developing and unifying the continent only time will tell how successful it will be maybe you know maybe we'll still be around to tell you uh, how agenda 2063 went uh whilst being up against a wall of internal and external challenges that was the steps to forming the african union as well as where it's currently at yeah that was us thank you so much for joining us and for listening to the first topic based episode of it's a continent thank you for listening don't forget to follow us on socials it's a continent on twitter and it's a continent pod on instagram 
Also, a big thank you to our supporters on Buy Me A Coffee, Olu and Andy. This helps us to keep creating and researching more content. You can find our Buy Me A Coffee link in the episode show notes and also in our podcast description. So we will be back in two weeks time looking at Guinea and the Guinean market women's revolt, which will explore a very interesting story. All right, we will catch you in two weeks time. Thanks. Bye. Bye.